Um, we're going to be talking about unveiling the mask, the relationship of chronic pain and psychopathology. Just a little bit about myself. Uh, like she said, my name is David Cosio. I am a board certified uh, clinical health psychologist, and I work at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center in Chicago. I am their psychologist in the outpatient clinic, uh, which is a multidisciplinary clinic, and then I am also the psychologist in our 12-week interdisciplinary CARF accredited program. Um, I actually have our director in the audience, so shout out to her uh, today. Uh, that being said, uh, I'm not here on behalf of the VA. I'm not here speaking on behalf of the VA. I do not represent the VA. I am here as a psychologist, just simply just sharing what I've learned in the last 10 years working at the VA, but also working within the community. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at our objectives. So today we're going to learn about the relationship between chronic pain and different mental health disorders. We're going to learn how mental health disorders are defined in the new DSM-5. For those of you who are not aware, yes, we have a new diagnostic system. So we're going to talk about how that is going to impact our understanding of mental health disorders among the chronic pain population. We're also going to learn about the recommended treatments for these mental health disorders. And then we're going to talk about the prevalence rates of these new DSM-5 disorders among chronic pain patients. Now what's happening is, is with the opioid epidemic is uh, as a reaction, a lot of providers are titrating medications, uh, especially the opioids. And when that happens, a lot of the providers have mentioned that they're starting to uncover untreated, undiagnosed mental health conditions. Uh, and so part of the concern is, is number one, is that going to happen to my patient? But then number two, if it does, if I recognize that, how do I get that patient some help, right? So my, my goal today, the whole purpose of me being here today, is to give you some practical things that you can use in your clinical practice to assess these different types of diagnoses, but also give you some indications of some treatments that might be uh, good uh, for these different types of mental health disorders. Now, what we know is that patients attending pain specialty clinics have more difficult to treat pain conditions. They have comorbid psychiatric disorders. They use more outpatient services, and they receive a greater number of opioids. Um, and you, as frontline practitioners, are going to be faced with this type of situation where you start tri-trading somebody off of their opiates, and they're going to start reporting some of these other symptoms. Uh, because the opioids might be masking them. And so these data support the inclusion of a mental health care to be incorporated in part of the chronic pain management plan. I'm really excited about this slide. I just had them change it uh, because this is, is brand new off of the press. This is a study that just came out this year. And what they looked at was the uh, amount of morphine equivalents that would predict whether somebody would have an opioid overdose. And what they found is that about 80% of mortality occurred before 90 milligrams morphine equivalents. Now that's not what got me excited. What got me even more excited is that they looked at the mental health and substance use needs of these populations. And what they found is that in that same range, that 70% of those individuals had mental health and a, a substance use disorder. Again, underlining the importance of incorporating mental health treatment as part of the chronic pain management plan. And so what is the role of mental health and pain management? Well, in most cultures, mental health goes without being recognized. That's, we know that. But here in this country, we do a little bit better at assessing and treatment. 
There was a study that was done looking at primary care that found that if it went untreated or unevaluated, about 60% of patients would have depression. Again, underlining the importance of doing assessment. There are also numerous studies that documented strong associations between different mental health conditions and chronic pain, and there are others that we know less about. So the ones that we know a lot about are depression, anxiety, somatoform personality disorders, and substance use disorders, and we know a little bit less about the others, which is schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, sleep-wake disorders, bipolar disorder, neurocognitive disorder, and dissociative disorders. So what is the relationship between mental health and chronic pain? So individuals who suffer from chronic pain in a mental health condition are going to have more serious, Ill, uh, more serious uh, symptoms. We also know that healthcare providers, if someone has a mental health condition, tend to focus on the fact that they have a mental health condition and may take their medical symptoms less seriously. We also know that patients may also focus on their mental health symptoms more so than they do with their medical symptoms, and it's less likely that they're gonna receive adequate care because of this. We also know that's associated with impaired recovery, greater functional incapacitation, lower quality of life, and increased risk for suicide. That is a huge issue right now. The VA is taking a lot of steps into making sure that we are assessing every patient who comes into the hospital who is reporting pain, that they are also being assessed for suicide. Now, there was a study in 1986, and this was done by Fishban and colleagues. This was a seminal study that was done to look at the relationship between chronic pain and psychopathology. They looked at 283 chronic pain patients, and this was in the University of Miami School of Medicine. What they did is they did a three-day evaluation, and part of those three days, Two hours were looking, uh, using a semi-structured interview to determine what type of mental health conditions were being reported by this population. We know that the, the male and female breakdown of the study, there were a little bit more males than when there were females, but there was no significant difference between age and race. Um, and then it lists the different primary locations of pain. Now what they found was, is that patients who had pain were most likely to report anxiety. And that's what I learned in my past 10 years, is that what the patient that is sitting in front of me is most likely going to be suffering from an untreated and an undiagnosed anxiety disorder. Now, after that, they also said that there was a high uh, uh, probability that they would have personality disorder or depression or substance use. And then when you kind of go be below that, 10% and below are the other types of mental health conditions. Now, we didn't have any information about psychosis, they didn't report at all about sleep disorders, and they didn't report at all about dissociative disorders. So there were a lot of lacks uh, in, in the data. So what do we know? We're gonna go in a deep dive now. We're gonna go into what is it that we know about these different types of mental health conditions and the relationship with chronic pain. So let's start off with anxiety since it's supposedly the one that we're gonna experience the most. When it comes to anxiety disorder, the research shows that about 60% of patients are going to report having anxiety symptoms. Now here's the problem. The data that is currently existing is based on data using DSM versions that are different from our current version. The current DSM-5 has made huge changes when it comes to anxiety disorders. This is perhaps the chapter that made the most revisions. 
Um, when it comes to anxiety disorders, they removed obsessive compulsive disorder and they removed post-traumatic stress disorder out of that category. And the reason they did that is because they are related to anxiety, but they're their own different monster. They're their own different condition. And so they created chapters near the anxiety disorder, but they're no longer considered anxiety disorders. So that's one huge change. And that's going to impact how we understand anxiety disorders and their relationship to chronic pain, depending on which method you're using to assess. It's going to depend on the DSM you're using. So Fishband used the DSM-3. You know, we now have the DSM-5. That's like four versions old. Um, what spectrum of disorders are included in the study. And, but if even when we do that, there are two that are the most likely to be reported by patients who have chronic pain, and that is panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. What about personality disorders? Now, when we talk about the personality disorders, there are three general clusters. This hasn't really changed very much in the new DSM-5. They're starting to make a little bit of changes, uh, but it really kind of stayed the same. Uh, the three clusters are cluster A, B, and C. They couldn't have made it easier than that, right? Cluster A are the odd and eccentric characteristics. Cluster B are the dramatic or the, um, the uh, oh my God, I just went blank. The dramatic and the histrionic, thank you. And C are the anxiety. Those are your avoidant disorders, your, uh, your dependent or your obsessive compulsive personality disorders. The rate of patients who have chronic pain who have a personality disorder can range anywhere between 30 to 60%. 51% will meet criteria for one personality disorder, but 30% will meet the criteria for two or more. And what's interesting to me is that 16% of patients who have chronic pain will have a personality disorder, but only 21% when it comes to acute pain. Again, maybe helping to explain how the way we cope uh, uh, explains the chronification of acute pain. What is important to understand is that the personality disorder must predate the chronic pain injury or the, in the moment of injury. What tends to happen is that we'll do the diagnosing and we'll do start doing the evaluation post-injury, uh, but one of the important things that we need to make sure is that these personality changes or these characteristics existed even before the chronic pain condition. Why? Because when people suffer from chronic pain, obviously it's going to change how you cope and it's going to change how you present yourself, right? So these are pre-existing. They, they are not as a result of the chronic pain condition. What we also know is that the uh, cluster that is most likely to be represented in the chronic pain population is going to be cluster C. Again, these are the people who are generally anxious. What about depression? So depression didn't change too, too much. It did change a little um, in that we now consider bereavement as being part of under the depression category. Uh, that makes sense to me. When people are in pain, uh, they tend to grieve. That's a grieving process that they undergo, right? And so they're going to report depression. This is the, the category that we're the most interested in. I think it's because it's the one that we're most comfortable in, right? We're comfortable in, in diagnosing and in, in treating it. Uh, that ranges anywhere from 15 to 100%. If you go into a primary care clinic, it's going to be anywhere between 5 to 10% of the patients you're seeing. But once you start going into a specialty clinic, those numbers go higher. So obviously, if you go into a pain clinic, uh, this study specifically was looking at dental clinic. It was about 85%. Um, here's the thing. 
Your patients are going to less likely have depression if they understand what is causing their pain. If there is a, a, a defined uh, trigger or they understand what is the process that is causing their pain, they're less likely to have depression. The more symptoms that they do not, are not able to explain, the more likely that they're going to be depressed. That makes sense to me, right? Pain symptoms are associated with a twofold increase of depression, and the more symptoms you have, the more severe their, both conditions are going to be. What about substance use? So this is another category that, that experienced a huge change. You know, up to this point, we had substance abuse and substance dependence. Here's the thing. Nobody knew the difference. They used them interchangeably, right? It also really didn't help define what would happen to people who didn't meet those criteria. And so they redefined substance abuse and substance dependence, and now they call it substance use disorder. Now, substance use disorder can be defined for anything like an illicit drug. You know, those are the easy ones, cocaine, heroin. Uh, but it also could include things like tobacco. It could include things like caffeine. It could include things like alcohol, right? Now, what we know is that patients who have pain have a history of substance use. Not all of them, but some of them have a history of substance use, and vice versa. Patients who have a history of substance use suffer from pain. Uh, we know about 3 to 48% of chronic pain patients have a current substance use disorder. You guys can read what the lifetime prevalences are. I don't like those. 94% uh, of chronic pain patients have a lifetime of substance use disorder. But again, someone who has a chronic pain condition is no more likely to have a substance use disorder than another medical condition. I think that that's interesting because that's not what we expect or what we think, right? We think if somebody has a, subs a chronic pain condition, they're more likely, and that's not what the research is saying at all. Now, the research is based only on things like alcohol, uh, but it doesn't look at tobacco and it doesn't look like marijuana. Marijuana has made a huge uh, you know, growth in the last decade, uh, and so the research hasn't really looked at that. Uh, when it comes to the most commonly used substances, it's alcohol and then obviously narcotics. All right. The category that perhaps had the huge change was the somatization disorders. Why? Because there was a lot of stigma related to these disorders. You know, when someone would come into the clinic and they have a somatization disorder, where do they go after that? They go to someone like me, right? This, this, is, this one's yours, David, right? Not necessarily, right? These disorders had a lot of stigma related to them, and so there was a social political uh, move to change the name of these disorders. It is now called uh, somatic symptom disorder. Uh, somatic symptom disorder includes pain. Why? Because it used to be defined as your symptoms were not explained. That is no longer the criteria. Your symptoms can be explained. What's more important is how your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, and your behaviors, how they impact you related to that medical condition. Um, so it could be any medical condition. It doesn't necessarily be one that is not explained. Um, so again, you guys can read the lifetime prevalences of these different conditions. So where there is no longer hypochondriasis, that does no longer exist. Conversion disorder no longer exists. Pain disorder isn't even a disorder anymore. So when I see patients in the pain clinic, I diagnose them with a somatic symptom disorder now. Now, there's a lot of uh, different conditions we know less about. And when I say we know less, we know barely anything at all. 
So let's start with the neurocognitive disorders. So these are things like dementia and delirium. We know that about 20 to 50% of patients with chronic pain will suffer from some type of dementia. About 60 to 80% of individuals with neurocognitive disorder in care homes experience pain. Uh, but when it comes to the specific types, which, whether it's vascular or temporal, uh, uh, frontotemporal or the Lewy bodies, a type of dementia, we don't have data on that. We, we haven't looked at that yet. However, we have looked at Parkinson's disease, so it's about 68 to 85%, and we also have looked at traumatic brain injuries in the civilian and veteran population. Civilians, it's about 52%, and among veterans, it's about 42%. That almost seems like it should go the other way around, right? Civilians, it should be lower than what you would expect. Bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder has not changed either. Uh, bipolar disorder is diagnosed when somebody reports uh, episodes of depression, but they also are uh, reporting episodes of mania. They have a lot of energy. They can be hypersexual. They can be spending a lot of money on Amazon. I think I might have a little of that. Um, <laughs> And you guys can read, right? Uh, the prevalence is about 29% when it comes to clinical pain. But what's interesting is, is that when patients are diagnosed with bipolar disorder, they will at times report up to four different pain complaints. The most common being migraine headaches, right? So if they have migraines, uh, they're three times more common to experience those. And this is believed to have to do with their etiology. You know, they have common etiologies. So is it vascular, is it cellular, molecular, neurochemical, or genetic? in both conditions. Obsessive compulsive disorder, again, did not change very much, except that it was pulled out of the anxiety disorders and now it's its own category. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is when you kind of obsess about a certain topic or a certain thing uh, and you kind of use different behaviors to kind of help with those obsessions. We see a lot of that in chronic pain population, right? But not to the level in which it would be a diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder. So that really hasn't changed. Uh, what about schizophrenia? Schizophrenia um, is a difficult one because when people suffer from schizophrenia, not only are they reporting uh, symptoms that are sometimes bizarre, they may have you know, tactile hallucinations that could be confusing to someone who doesn't understand between the hallucinations and actual pain report, but they also have social kind of uh, difficulties and they have difficulties in communicating. And so it's not that they necessarily aren't feeling the pain, they just aren't able to communicate about it. It, right? Remember, pain is a social condition. We need to be able to communicate about it. We need to be able to social, social, socially communicate with each other. Uh, and so if that is uh, a deficit, then that's going to impact how we view that condition within that population. It's going to impact care. Um, and so again, about 38% of patients who have pain have reported some kind of psychosis. Most common complaint is headaches, but they do other sites. And again, it's these bizarre reports or bizarre hallucinations that may take precedence uh, uh, in the focus of the provider as opposed to looking at the real met pain condition. All right, the one that kind of shocks me is that we really don't know much about sleep-wake disorders. Um, and you're going to see why that shocks me in a little bit. It's the classic chicken and the egg, right? We know that patients who don't sleep well have an increase in pain, and we know that an increase in pain is going to affect your sleep. It's kind of a reciprocal relationship, right? It's a vicious cycle. They both share neurobiological systems. What we know is about 50 to 70% of patients who have pain are going to report some type of sleep disturbance. And this is going to include anything from like sleep apnea to things like restless leg syndrome or periodic lung move, limb movements. 
Um, you know, people with chronic pain report more sleep disturbances, and again, there's that reciprocal relationship. That's all we know. That shocks me. All right, what about the dissociative disorder? So this is a very, very rare disorder. So I did my internship at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, I did it there because it was a mental health counseling center, but it also had a rotation in health for a year. And one of the things that I was lucky to do was to shadow a couple of psychiatrists who their main population was the dissociative identity disorder population. So I got to see several different cases of people who would fly across the country just to see these, these two providers. Um, interestingly enough, I've had a case come through my pain clinic where this was something that you know, was an interesting uh, situation. So we were referred a patient who I'm going to call Philip, that's not his real name, and he came into the pain clinic, and when he came into the pain clinic, the paper said Philip, but who showed up was Jasmine. He showed up as a female. And so the provider was confused because there was no mention of the patient being transgender or non-binary on his chart. And so they came to my clinic and they said, what is going on here? Can you help me? Is this someone who's in transition? Is this someone who suffers from gender dysphoria? Is this someone who's binary? Or is something else going on? And in this case, something else was going on, right? I reviewed the chart. I called the, the psychologist who was working with this case. And it was someone who had a dissociative identity disorder. What was interesting about this case is that I learned something, is that when Jasmine came into the clinic, Jasmine felt no pain. But when Philip was present, Philip was the one who was reporting having lower back pain. The problem is, is that Philip was very angry and aggressive. So he didn't like to be touched. And he was actually there for spinal manipulation. So can you see the problem? And so the concern was is that the provider could be in the middle of treatment even after getting consent. And the alters could change mid-treatment. And that would be a danger to the patient and also to the person who was doing the spinal manipulation. And so we discussed this with the patient. We discussed why we were making the decision to defer the, the treatment at the moment and make sure that we had mental health, his mental health uh, provider involved. Uh, but this was not someone who was in transition. This was not someone who suffered from gender dysphoria. The, the altar was kind of present. Um, and again, this can happen. So these are the different time uh, of data from the dissociative disorder research. Headaches tend to be the most frequent, but again, it can attack different areas of the body. Uh, again, different alters are going to have different experiences, and the alter that tends to be the strongest is the one that usually takes charge. And so that person who's presenting may not have pain, but the other alter may, may have be suffering from pain. So I think that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Now, now we get to the taboo or polarizing disorders. I call them the taboo or polarizing disorders because we don't talk about these things. We're uncomfortable talking about these things, and so because we're uncomfortable talking about them, we don't know very much, if anything. Um, and so these disorders you know, may only have one or two findings that kind of show that there is a relationship, and we need to do a lot more work in these areas. So some of those are the neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, classically, this used to be under uh, disorders of childhood and infancy. That chapter was removed, and the disorders from childhood and infancy were put under each respective chapter where it fit. And so that chapter's gone, and now we have a neurodevelopmental chapter. This would include things like intellectual 
disability and as uh, uh, autism spectrum, disorders like that. What we know is that caregivers report about 15% of patients that are in their care suffer from pain, and usually they suffer from pain for more than five years. Um, significantly more females than males. Um, and so on and so forth. What about the feeding and eating disorders? These uh, are like the anorexia, the bulimia nervosa, the binge eating disorders. Again, there's some odd ratios on there that you can read about. The elimination disorders traditionally were uh, disorders of childhood infancy. Um, so those are things like encapresis or enuresis. But those have been uh, expanded now. Now they include adults as well. Where we see it in the adult populations in urological in clinics where uh, people come in with genital pain that's oftentimes uh, not explained and very hard to treat, right? So there's some research going on in that area. Uh, there also are children that are, have more of a dysfunctional profile who have these types of elimination disorders. And the reason is because they tend to have negative affect, but they also catastrophize in poor functional capacity. Sexual dysfunction. So when it comes to men and women, there are the same types of disorders when it comes to sex, and it's disorders at different stages of the sexual act. There's only one that women have that men do not have. Does anybody know which one that is? Not all at once. Sexual pain disorder is only diagnosed among women, not among men. Um, when it comes to sexual function, we know that pain is going to negatively affect sexual functioning. It's not only going to affect the plumbing, but it's also going to affect arousal. It's going to affect positioning. It's going to affect relationships, and it's going to affect performance. We know that. But again, not a lot. Gender dysphoria, I already kind of talked about this with a previous example, but gender dysphoria was changed because of social political issue. Um, it used to be gender identity disorder. Um, and when people were transitioning, non-binary individuals were transitioning, they didn't like being labeled as having a disorder. This is similar to what's happening now with post-traumatic stress. A lot of people want to remove the disorder part. So they removed disorder, and now it's called gender dysphoria. What's interesting among the transitioning population, the transgender population, is that when a male is transitioning to become a female and they take sex hormones, they tend to have an increase in pain in the chest area and in the hips. Why would that be? It's because these men are now transitioning to be women and they're having to go through puberty. The experiences that women go through when they go through in puberty, they're going through as an adult male. And so they're gonna report more pain in those areas. Now here what's interesting is that when a female transitions to be a male, the pain goes down, it reduces pain. And so there is a role of sex hormones when it comes to pain and we kind of already knew this, right? We know that men and women respond to opiates differently, and the, the belief is that it has to do with those exact same hormones. Um, so I talked about that. All right. What about paraphilias? So paraphilias have to do with sexual fantasies. So they're, sexual fantasies in and of themselves are not mental health disorders. It's when they are in getting in the way of you being able to live your life or they're negatively impacting another individual that they become a mental health condition, right? Um, and so we, again, we know that it's going to negatively affect sexual fantasies. There is some research to indicate that. And finally, let's process addictions. So there are substance and process addictions. We always focus on the substance use, but we don't ever talk about the process addictions. 
Now, process addictions, there's only two diagnoses that are in the DSM-5, and that's gambling and now internet use, right? But those are not the only two. We know that there are more. There's food addiction. There's shopping or spending addiction. I already told you I have a little problem with that. Exercise and sex addiction, right? Now, what we know is that the same brain reward system that is involved in substance use disorder is also involved in process uh, addiction. Uh, so it is of concern. We need to put a little bit more attention into this area. When it comes to treatment, a lot of the treatment centers are already using certain protocols and certain ways of approaching these treatments. Uh, when it comes to gambling disorder, and they're starting to transition and using some of those same treatments when it comes to internet addiction. All right. The deep, the deep dive is done. That's it. We reviewed them all. Now here's the fun part. So I told you that the DSM-5 was updated. So when the DSM-1 came out, I don't have a picture of it because I'm, my understanding is it was a pamphlet. I can't find one. So if you can find one, please send it to me because I'm trying to look for one. So this is the second version. This is the third version that Fishband used. But then there was a revision after that then the DSM-4, then another revision, and then now the DSM-5. The book keeps getting bigger. Why? Why is the book keep getting bigger? Is it because we're sicker? Some people might say yes, right? But that's not necessarily the case. What's happening is we're understanding these conditions better. We're starting to get research support for these different conditions. And when we don't have research support for them, we're eliminating them. Again, I've also underlined that there might be social political things that are happening that are also going to change the way that we describe these conditions. And then the other and most important thing that occurred is that in DSM-5, they started moving away from categories and started to look at these mental health conditions as dimensions. Why? Because at this time, it was when insurance companies were starting to cover some of these treatments. And if I only had four out of five criteria, then that meant I didn't get insurance coverage for my treatment. Does that mean someone doesn't need treatment? Of course not. Of course they need treatment. And so part of it was to expand the way we understand these disorders, but also in order to get people coverage when it comes to getting mental health treatment. So myself and my team, we did a study. In 2013, when the DSM-5 was released, they also released two emerging measures that not very many people know about. And so when I saw these two measures and I saw the need that we had in our clinic to make sure that we were assessing for clinical uh, mental health diagnoses, I decided that we should start using this to see if it was helpful. Now, at the time, when patients come in, what we often did is we would do an interview, and then we would do, uh, use a BAI, the Beck Anxiety Inventory, and then we would use the Beck Depression Inventory, right? That's very limited. That's only looking at depression and anxiety and not looking at any of these other conditions that we know nothing about. And so we decided to do a study for a year. From November of 2013 to October of 2014, we collected data from patients who were entering into our pain education school program. So our pain education school program, real quick, real, real quick plug, uh, is an education program we do with all the veterans in our hospital uh, that can be referred to our pain education program. And what we do in that program is we explain why do we do everything that we do when it comes to pain, but then we give them information about the different types of treatment and then how to get each type of treatment. So it's very helpful for them not only to know what their options are so they can make a decision, but also how to get those things. 
Um, and so when they would come into that program, we'd have them fill out these two measures, and so that way we could learn what kinds of different uh, disorders were prevalent in this population. Again, about 57% were African American, which means the rest were either Caucasian or from another race. Most were male, about 90%, which means about 10% were female. This is actually representative of the veteran populations. So usually about 7% are female. So we had a lot more than the, the national average. And then 37% were between 55 to 64 years old. Um, and that's the, the age range that had the most representation. They had mixed idiopathic pain conditions. Um, again, males and females did not differ in age and race. This is similar to the fish band study. But what was interesting to me was that only 1.5% of the patients that did the, the, the questionnaires did not report having any symptom of any of the domains. We're going to go into each domain right now. But 18.5% at least had six and then anything above six was 80% of them had more than six. Uh, again, there's two measures. So the first one's called the HUDAS. I call it the HUDAS. That's the World Health Organization uh, Disability Assessment Scale. And the HUDAS is 36 questions, and it assesses six domains. So it assesses cognition, mobility, self-care, getting along, life activities, and social participation. Why did we use that one is because we would use other, the Oswestry, and we would use uh, other measures that were available already. And when we would use them, we really didn't see any change. It was always low disability or low to moderate disability when we would use those measures. And so I wanted to see if we would find something different when we use this emerging measure. Here's the secret. We didn't find any difference. Um, then we also gave them the cross-cutting symptom measure or, uh, for adults. And this is a 23-item measure. And it does uh, look at 12 different psychiatric domains. We're going to go over those real quickly. Um, and this is, they have to report these symptoms without, within the last two weeks. So why am I sharing this with you is because oftentimes when I go across the country and I talk to providers, one of the complaints that I hear from them is, when do you expect me to do all this? I can't do my job and then also do a psychiatric evaluation. I may not feel comfortable. I may not be trained. Um, and so what do you, how am I supposed to do this? Here is a way to do it by using this measure. What you would do is you would give your patient this measure while they're waiting in the waiting room, and then right when you're sitting down and you're sitting with them, you can look at it real quick, see what symptoms they're reporting, and then if you feel that further assessment is needed, you would refer them to a mental health provider. But oftentimes you may not see anything, and so it kind of gives you a, okay, we can keep going, we can move on, right? It can help you know what is not happening as opposed to what is happening. So each domain uh, is represented. So the first two questions are depression. That comes from the PHQ-2, the per, uh, Patient Health Questionnaire 2, which is a good screener for depression that's used often. Uh, that's, this is actually it. And so if they score anything over a 2, that requires that you do further assessment in that area. Second domain is anger. Third is a bipolar disorder. Fourth is anxiety disorder. Fifth is somatic symptom disorder. Sixth domain is actually a question about suicide. Uh, again, uh, there's a national push to make sure that we are assessing every patient who has pain to make sure that they, uh, they don't have suicidal ideations or a plan to hurt themselves. The seventh domain, uh, this is the psychotic disorders, sleep, memory, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, dissociative disorder, personality disorder, and substance use disorders.
So if they score a two or higher, those are areas in which you should do a little bit further evaluation to make sure that they need treatment in that area, if that's something that's of concern, uh, if you need to refer them to a mental health provider. If it's lower than two, then it, they may have a symptom, but it's not of concern at that moment. Now, if everybody, every, everyone scores every, anything under two, then that means the person is good, and that's something that you can document in your chart. They gave them this instrument. They didn't show any elevations in any of the domains. No further evaluation is needed. Done. But if there are evaluations, elevations, which you're going to see that there are, then what you were going to do is you're going to come up with a plan of how you're going to address them. So here are the results. We compared our results to Fishband's original 1986 study, and what we found is that when it came to their findings and our findings, they were completely different, except for two conditions, which was interesting for me, and that was the anxiety disorders and the substance use disorders. There were no significant differences between the two groups. Um, when it came to males and females, there were significant differences in three of them. That was mania, anxiety, and substance use. Men were more likely to report mania and substance use. Women were more likely to report anxiety. Why is this important is because we restructured the order in which uh, the disorders were more prevalent. And what we found is, is that most likely what you're going to have sitting in front of you is someone who is suffering from a sleep disorder and anger. So what's really great about this conference is, is guess what you're going to learn about this afternoon? Someone's talking about sleep, and I'm talking about anger this afternoon. So perfect timing, right? Uh, and what we find is that when we use this in our clinical practice, we keep seeing this finding come up. They also said uh, somatic symptoms, which we expect is going to be high, but then after that is depression, anxiety, right, where you would expect them. And so again, these numbers are a lot higher. We, we now have some data about psychosis that we didn't have before. When it came to substance use, again, not too different than what was originally found. So a summary. When it came to the HUDAS, that's the evaluation looking at their uh, disability. What we found is that in this population as well, using a different measure, we still find low to moderate difficulty when it comes to the specific areas. When it comes to the different cultural groups, we did find a significant difference between the Latino community, but no difference between any of the other races. Um, so we witnessed more mania, we witnessed more memory problems, and we witnessed more repetitive thoughts and behaviors. So there could be a couple reasons for this. One could be that we're using more of a dimensional way of approaching these conditions, and so we're most likely to see some of these things increase. That could be part of it. The other part of it could be that there might be a high rate of false positives, right? If we're just saying anybody over a two should be considered to have this disorder, that's going to probably explain why there's more of these people reporting this. However, you can make it more stringent. What if you only look at people who are at four or above three, which would be four? Um, <laughs> then that's going to lower your burden, but it also can give you a better idea of that that is something that's definitely happening in, in, in the patient that's presenting with you. Uh, what else? You also want to consider the differential diagnosis. So when it comes to bipolar disorder, there's other conditions that could be explaining why this patient's reporting this symptom. So there's endocrine or metabol metabolic conditions. This is huge when it comes to the veteran population. Uh, drug intoxications or tumors. When it comes to memory, this could be part of the aging process. It could be medications, mul multiple medications that the patient is taking. It could be explained because of depression. And then when it comes to the OCD symptoms, again, that could be depression, phobic disorders, anorexia, cluster C personality, and somatization, or schizophrenia, sorry. 
Now, what, one thing that really upset me, that upsets me, is that the, the measure does not have a domain specifically for post-traumatic stress. But I'm seeing the same kind of cluster of, of, of symptoms or domains being present when people have PTSD. That's what we're looking at now. Um, and what we find and what we need to consider is the differential diagnosis of PTSD. So anxiety disorders, phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, it also could be depression. They also could be reporting anger. Uh, and so what we see those three domains being elevated and it's the person is diagnosed with PTSD, I feel like those three kind of explain the post-traumatic stress disorder uh, diagnosis, but we're looking into that. Um, it also fails to measure the taboo disorder. So you thought we didn't know anything, now we still aren't gonna know anything because nobody's measuring these things, right? Um, and so that's, I think, another weakness of the measure. Uh, but again, this could be a measure that you could implement in your practice that could help you decide what's not happening. If someone is not endorsing any of these symptoms, then you can kind of take a breath of relief and say, okay, they're not reporting any symptoms in these areas and we can move on. But it may also help you give you an idea of what is the patient having symptoms about. It can help you document those symptoms. It can help you develop a new, better treatment plan. It can help, you can help monitor the treatment progress. Uh, and it can also improve, uh, you can see improvements in these symptoms over time. All right. So I told you one way to evaluate it. So let's evaluate them, and then we find out all these people need mental health treatment. Where are we going to give them? So according to the Division 12 of the American Psychiatric Association, these are the different types of treatment for the different conditions. I have one and two, two different treatments that are highlighted because they are common across different conditions, and that is cognitive behavioral therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy. This is why you hear those two things all the time when you come to this conference. In fact, this morning there was a beautiful presentation done about acceptance and commitment therapy, right? So if you missed it, look at it on demand. All right, so I wanna talk about these two uh, treatments real quickly. So this is the manual I use for cognitive behavioral therapy. It's by John Otis. John is not giving me any kickback. It's just a really good resource, right? Why I love it is because it uses cognitive behavioral therapy and it shows you models in which to how to use it within this population. I also love it because look at the two things that are highlighted. The two things that your patients are going to become in, complaining about are anger and sleep hygiene and sleep problems. And they are addressed in this protocol. Uh, so again, really great resource to have. This is the model for cognitive behavioral therapy, and I just want to take a little bit of time and sit here for a minute so we can kind of see how this works, um, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page, right? So when we know that someone has pain, we know that tends to affect the way that they think. True or false? Again, all of you, true or false? Very good. What about behaviors? We know that pain tends to affect behaviors. True or false? Okay, lesser true, okay. What about thoughts? Do thoughts affect your behaviors, true or false? And so if that is true, we also know that the opposite is true. We know that the way that we behave affects the way that we think. It is a reciprocal relationship. So if that's true, then the opposite is true about the other, the other two relationships. If we change the way people behave, we're going to change their experience of pain. And if we change the way that people think, we're going to also change the way that they behave. And how we're going to do that is by using the different types of treatment modalities that are offered in cognitive behavioral therapy. That's how that works. What about acceptance and commitment therapy? So again, this morning there was a great presentation, so I'm gonna to try to do just as a good job. 
Um, so there's a manual out there by Joan Dahl. She's Scandinavian. She was one of the first to use acceptance and commitment therapy in pain. This is her book. It's a four-session protocol, two sessions of individual therapy, two sessions of group therapy. It's a good start, but it definitely needs more than that, right? Uh, Oftentimes when I go across the country and I talk to providers, they'll say, well, this is great, David. This is, this is great. Here's the problem is, is my patient doesn't have access to mental health, so now what? And what I say to those people is I say, okay, this is what you do. Buy this book right here. Not because I'm getting a kickback. I don't get a kickback from this. It's because it's a good resource. It's by Joan Dahl and Ludgren. It's a workbook where patients can go through and actually start doing some of these things on their own. There's research to show that patients do get better by following this workbook. And so if your patient starts doing the workbook and they start seeing some improvement, then that is some place they need to invest some money in is, is to getting mental health care. This is the model. It's a lot more complicated, right? <laughs> Too many arrows for me. I don't know about you. One of the things that makes me laugh about this therapy is that they use very sexy words to, re to de describe very common things. So one of the things they say is that what we are trying to do in acceptance and commitment therapy is work on people's psychological inflexibility. What the hell does that mean? That means we're stubborn. We are stubborn beings. And so what we need to do is become more open. We need to be more present and we need to take more action. And so there are six different pro protocols or diff blah, 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 six different ways in which we do that. So you can do acceptance, work trying to be, be more willing to accept, and cognitive diffusion, which is separating yourself from your thinking. That's how we become more open. Um, we use mindfulness practice, and we use self as context versus content. Um, as practices in which uh, to be more present. And then we use values-based actions and committed action plans to take more action. Um, again, acceptance and commitment therapy. That is it for my presentation today. If you liked me, please like me on Twitter and on Facebook.